first okay. of all, it's fantastic to meet you at last because, you know, having been in the same country for 50 years, it's amazing that we haven't crossed paths, but then that's what we haven't crossed. Oh, I know, and, but you've got a way better microphone than I have. I'm just, I'm just using- Well, we can talk about, use. yeah, we can talk about this microphone because it is a special mic. It came from the Rolling Stones mobile recording studio circa 1970 something or other. Nice. And I bought, I bought it from Bill Wyman who bought the Stones mobile and then sold it. And it's probably had Mick Jagger Mick Jagger's lips around it. It's had Elton. It's had um, well. I've recorded two Stones. That's Bill Wyman yes. and Charlie Watts, who were nice. working on a a project together called uh, Bill Wyman's Rhythm Kings. Yes, great. I love it. And then they did an album called uh, Willie and the Poor Boys. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I heard that too. Yeah, that's good. And I, yeah, and I've got you were asking about funny stories. <laughs> All right. Well, the funny story it, it's. Chris Rear is not someone who's very well known in America. Exactly. Okay, yeah, driving home for Christmas. It was early days. Chris was still pretty popular here, but um, Bill Wyman was doing this Willie and the Poor Boys uh, project. And, uh, you know, I said, look, I'll tell you what, there's a great singer who lives up the road. His name's Chris Rear. Bill never heard of him, really. He said, well, get him down, get him down. So uh, Chris pops down, and it's early 70s. Chris isn't the snappiest dresser in the world. In fact, at this time, he used to wear sort of boiler outfits. He sort of put on a bit of weight, you know, he didn't really look like the rock star. Anyway, he happened to be in this uh, accommodation part of the studio, because uh, he, he, I recorded two albums with him at the mill with Elton John's producer, Gus Dudgeon. Anyway, he happened to be bending down at the washing machine at the time, I think, I don't know why. But, but uh, Charlie Watts happened to be in the room. Anyway, I said to Chris, we're doing Baby, Please Don't Go. You know, I guess most of us know that song. He didn't really know it, so he had to learn it. And uh, a, few, a few hours later, we're in the studio. Chris is singing live with Bill Wyman, Charlie Watts. I don't know who the others were, but he's doing his version of Baby, Please Don't Go. Anyway, Charlie at one point comes in the studio. Chris is in the, in the recording room. He says, you know what? He's not got a bad voice for a plumber, has he? Yeah, and, and I don't know if you, you have to meet Charlie to know he's extremely deadpan. Yes, to, yes. To the, to the point of like, you really don't know actually whether he's taking the mickey or not. That's but right. anyway, I, I said, well, no, he's, he's not a plumber. He's a singer, songwriter. He says, oh, what band's he in then? <laughs> and I said, well, he's not in a band, you know, he's on his own. And, and this ridiculous conversation, he said, why can't he get anyone to play with him? <laughs> Anyway, he's extremely eccentric. I think maybe people think that uh, that uh, Charlie Watts is the sensible one, but actually he's probably the most eccentric out of all of them. Well, that's the jazz um, thing, right? Yeah, that's it. And it makes me think about meeting people who are really talented, who are not successful, and seeing how they are perceived by others. I mean, for instance, you know, Reg was... Yeah one of the guys in the studio and then suddenly well well you say that yeah say that but i spent a lot of time with him of course i met him when i was 15 years old exactly at, uh i was working for dick james the beatles music publisher uh reg was signed as a, as a songwriter primarily because dick james music was primarily well it was at that time a music publishers hmm. so so reg was in the studio making demos well pretty good demos actually with Caleb Quay and um, 
but he's a great guy, you know, and he was very, very flamboyant. And from a, for a 15 year old from Edgware, well, actually Mill Hill in North London, I'd never met anyone quite like him, you know, he's oh. very flamboyant in his dress. He was, uh, so, but there was a lot of flamboyant, outrageous people, to be honest. There was some unusual people floating around the office and in London in 1967. I mean, mm -hmm. everyone was freaking out. So in a way, he didn't look out of place particularly. But, um, but what was different about him was when he sat at the piano and played you, you know, played me a song that I've never heard before. And this was the first time this had happened. And I was just, I was just taken away. I mean, I, it was one of the first times I heard a, a song for the first time with a, someone playing it live in front of me. And it just uh, gave me all the chills and everything else. And I just thought this guy's amazing. So we became, but we became friends and uh, he, he was very shy actually. Maybe people don't realize that. He was quite shy at the time. And we used to take him around North London, you know, some of the uh, Jewish, I should suppose they were, you know, delicatessens and joints in Edgware and Mill Hill and take him to my parents. And he was very shy, very quiet. Mm. Um, anyway, it's a long story, obviously. Yes. I mean, then he uh, started, um, doing gigs, you know, small time gigs and theatres and, well, not theatres, actually, they were colleges and universities. Mm. And at the same time, you know, it's, it's the story, he met Steve Brown and then Steve started producing him. Uh, we, we then formed a label at Dick James. You know, when I met Elton, I was the office boy. I went from office boy to disc cutter to studio engineer. And then I became assistant to the head of the, the record company that we formed, which was DJM. And uh, primarily we were working on Elton's career because he was definitely the, uh, the best singer songwriter at the time who was signed. And um, in fact, Steve Brown, who not many people talk about or know about, he pretty much discovered Elton and got him on the road. Um, he was the guy that uh, was managing Elton, took him to LA to play at the Troubadour, that famous gig. Mm. And um, I wasn't there, but, you know, I was getting all the reports back. And uh, next minute, he's headline news of the Melody Maker in England, which was uh, the first time. But then on the second tour, he, uh, Steve didn't really want to go. He was a bit fed up with that. So, Stuart, do you want to go on tour? Of course, absolutely. So, aged 18, I met everyone at the airport. And here we started on a three-month tour of America uh, with me sort of assisting Elton. I suppose I was personal assistant. Um, you know, it was an amazing time, really, because he hadn't been going down great in in the UK, people ignoring him, not really that interested. But you you guys in America, you just took to him like we just couldn't believe it. You know, script, you know, loved him to bits, absolutely loved him to bits. The Americans, you took him to your took him to your hearts, yes. loved the music, loved the Englishness of it all. And so, you know, I was there at Carnegie Hall, we played and, um, you know, some of these, they're small venues, really theatres. Mm. But uh, anyway, it was the start of Elton's career, which obviously, as we know, took off and became uh, supersonic and larger than, larger, to be honest, than any of us imagined. Yes. The, only yeah. one who, the only one who properly perceived how large he was going to get was Elton. Right, well, maybe so, but I, there are a couple of things that what you've just talked about it made me think. sure yeah first sure. thing is at 18 for them to put their trust in you at that time you must have been a pretty together kid 
I mean, let's face it, you wouldn't entrust somebody who was a flake to do that job. So what was it about what you'd done before that that impressed you? Well, to be honest, we were, I, I would say we were all in, an, in the same boat because we kind of, you know, in those days, you, it's only when you look back, you, you realize how quickly everything happened because at the time it seemed to drag on, you know, time just dragged on. But actually from my age, 15 to 18, so much happened uh, in my life and also with, El with Elton, you know, we made this first album that never got released. We made uh, Empty Sky, then we made the first Elton John album. And, and his career was really going quite fast without us really even noticing. Uh, and then plus the Troubadours. So, but we were all in it together. We were all as naive, if you like, as each other. Somebody yeah. was in, in charge of the kind of financial side of it. Well, right. that's Dick. That's the great Dick James. Yeah, but, you but what is it about you that impressed Dick that said, well, I can trust this guy. This kid, he may be young, but man, you know, he's, yeah. he's doing the well, job for me. Well, Dick James, unfortunately, he was portrayed, and I was only just talking about this today, absolutely appallingly in, Rocket, in the film Rocket Man. Mm. It's one of the worst things I've ever seen happen to anyone, really. You know, as far as we, I, we never heard Dick James swear. He was a gentleman, you know, he could get angry and he was a pretty firm uh, boss, but we never heard him swear and he didn't talk like a secondhand car de dealer. So they've got that all wrong there. So, but he was a very fair chap and uh, he put his trust in, in Steve Brown, who was now in charge of Elton's career. So an, an example of that is that Empty Sky had been made on a shoestring you know, maybe a thousand, two thousand pounds or something. But when we wanted to do the new Elton John album, which had your song, uh, the budget came down to five thousand pounds, which at the time was like a hundred grand or something. It was a fortune. So it's, it's an example of the way that Dick James put his trust in the team because Steve went to Dick. He said, we need five thousand. Dick said, fine. You know, he believed in Elton. He believed in his songwriting. You know, he could hear a good song. I mean, Dick sure. was a singer. Dick was a singer, for goodness sake, so he could tell, you know, he might not have agreed with the guy's character exactly, but uh, sure. he, so he, he was very fair, and so he put his trust in, but really we were a team on our own, so the, um, the team that met, which I was very happy to be a part of, I mean, the main thing was that I'd been friends with Elton for three years, four years, uh, you know, we all, we all liked each other, so it was mates in a way. You know, we had tour managers, we had lighting guys, sound guys, so, so it was really was only care of the sort of technical side of it was taken care yeah, of. So your, right, yeah. your side of it on, on tour, at least, was to make sure that uh, Elton was happy. His, he had his tickets. Yes, that's airplane. We always got on well with the same star sign. I loved his music to pieces. He's a very funny guy. He's actually a great guy to be with. Yeah. Some of the time he'd be looking after me. He's he's so professional. Yes. Uh, that doesn't get spoken about much, you know, people are more interested in what he spends on flowers and this sort of thing. That's right. Yeah. But he's extremely professional. And let's face it, he'd learnt his profession, you know, he gigged all over the place. He'd been a, a, a session guy on other exactly. people's sessions. I love the fact that you've pointed that out about him because everybody who I've talked to who's worked with him said, you know, the guy's a professional studio musician and he started that yeah. way. And you were fortunate enough also to work with 
the guys in Led Zeppelin were also studio players way before they formed the group. A yeah. friend of mine, Steve Rowland, who you may know, all of his productions, uh, he used those guys, the Led Zeppelin as his studio band. Oh, yeah. John Paul Jones yeah. did all his arrangements. So yeah. you know, it, it's a different thing working with studio people because they, <laughs> they know the process really well. I mean, these are the old days that we're talking about when uh, you did have to do a certain amount of um, groundwork. You had, a be, had to be a great musician to, to be doing what you were doing. So, and then when it breaks, you know, when, when it finally happens and you're now selling records and it's all going well, then hopefully you know how to deal with it in a professional way. And um, I mean, you know, you know, I worked with Jimmy. I didn't work, I worked on the last Zeppelin album, but I didn't, I only worked with Jimmy and Robert. Mm. And, uh, and, and Jimmy, I mean, in a slightly more haphazard fashion, if you like, than Elton to some degree, but also um, a genius in the studio. Uh, beyond beyond musicianship, you know, I always say that uh, it's one thing being able to play an instrument or sing or be a great singer or be a great musician, but you have to have the brain and the uh, passion and the and the like you do in any other business to a certain sure. extent, you sure. know, to make it to make it really work as a business and for it to to go go places. And certainly Elton John has that, and uh, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant. Yes, and and I've been lucky to lucky to work with some of these people who, uh, in a way, spoil you for things to come when you work <laughs> with. Uh, well, you know. yeah, and and that's that's another good question. I mean, uh, professionalism in the studio. Yeah, I mean, like I say, some aspects of Jimmy uh, Jimmy Page was a little bit uh, not quite. Um, but I, do you know what? I, there, there isn't there isn't a, there isn't a musician that uh, that anyone would know. Yeah. that springs to mind. I mean, all right, we were talking about Charlie Watts yeah. and, uh, and how um, eccentric he is. And, and we were doing this uh, track with Bill Wyman and, and the band was all out in the studio. They're playing away, I'm recording it. It's all going great. Suddenly it all stops because Charlie had stopped playing. He'd not only stopped playing, he stood up and he started walking around. <laughs> and Bill said, you know, Bill said, and he suddenly goes over, he saw, he saw a picture that wasn't straight. Oh, I see. And wanted to make the picture straight and he wasn't happy with the track so that was a bit strange so that wasn't particularly professional but I mean it's only a small story because you know I've worked with Paul Rogers I've worked with some of the best musicians drummers yes. guitarists yes. and um, to be honest it's only it's only in recent years where I'm now um, being able to be hired by uh, people that I don't know very well out in the public Mm -hmm. And and one of the big things now is that everyone's got recording facilities at home. You know, they've yes. got all these uh, bas basic music programs. Yes. And so there's unfortunately a lot of unprofessionalism that goes on there. Yeah. Yes. Because, because actually they don't know what the professional route is. I kind of feel it's like somebody telling me, oh, I've got a Ferrari, but they don't know how to drive a Ferrari. You know, That's, and it, yeah, it, it's kind of like that. You've I'm got not... Some, I'm, I'm not sure it's quite as dangerous as what you've just described. Well, it's dangerous to my ears. <laughs> yeah, that's right. They feel that, uh, you know, they've got a Beatles record or a, or an Oasis record on here. Yes. And now they've got the equipment here and they think, well, I should be able to produce the same sound. It should all be quite easy. I've got all the mm. same stuff. Yeah. And then, they, and well, from my point of view, it's actually pretty good because they find out that actually recording isn't difficult. 
you know, you can press a button and it'll get recorded, you could play it back. And you can do this a hundred times till you've got a hundred instruments all playing. But right. somehow, somehow it still doesn't sound like a record. I went yeah. to a very, very famous studio recently to record yeah. some strings. Because, right. as you know, I do a lot of strings. Yes, I've and, seen it. Was that Capitol Studios by any chance? I'm not going to tell you which studio it is because oh. of the nature of the story. I'm going to be enough. a good boy and not, not rank on anybody. But Fair I went enough. to a very, very well-known studio in L.A. Yeah. And I walked in and there are the microphones on the strings. It was, a, it was only a quartet, you know. Yes. And there were the close mics. And then I walked in and there, and I said, what about the overheads? Oh, you want overheads? Oh, yeah. oh, oh. you want overheads? I said, yeah. yes. So the guy brought it in, young engineer, yes. and, and he put the overheads about a foot above where they were sitting. Uh, not not particularly overhead then really no no exactly and i said the yep. in fact that's what i said i said the word yeah. overhead kind of means way up uh, and, and and he said oh really you want it up there now okay. i've got to tell you man from i've been recording well since the late 60s all the way through and i have never gone into a studio where an engineer didn't know how to mic a string section i mean excuse no, me that's that's not good I'd say, well, I mean, but so this is what I'm asking you. The question I'm asking you is yes. compare the whole way that people used to, I mean, look, you were kind of a tape, you were the tape op, you were the assistant engineer for years yes. before yes. you actually started engineering yourself. Yes. Obviously you learned stuff. That's right. Yeah. But these did. guys don't seem to do that. No. But um, I, what I was going to say is, in a way, it's sort of lucky for me that they don't know their way around it all. Otherwise, I wouldn't get hired, you see. They well, wouldn't need me. So I've got a great career now, another career, uh, fixing people's home recordings. Yeah. And I say, I'll, I'll make it into a record. Someone came yeah. in, a young person came in to the studio at the mill. We had a nine-foot Beckstein there. And they sort of walk over to it and they go, well, what's, what's this? I said, well, it's a, it's a piano, you know, it's, a, well, it's very big, isn't it? What sort of sounds can you get out of it? Well, you know, you get this sound out of it and you sort of play the piano. And they say, yeah, that's very good. Anything else? Well, not really, no. How much is one of these? Well, it's about $50,000. And then they sort of pass out in disbelief. Exactly. Yeah. But, I, but I suppose the lucky thing is that somehow or other we've ended up in the 21st century where there are still youngsters who want to hit pieces of wood, drums, they want to strum guitars, they want to learn Stairway to Heaven, Smoke on the Water, you know. They, yeah. It seems like the music from the 60s, the, the era that, we've, that we started out in, yes. is, almost, is almost more relevant now than it was then. Yes. Which is, which, however, how did that happen? I mean, obviously, we know how it's happened because it turns out that music was rather good. Um, it was a bit special, one way or yes. another, and yes. it's almost it almost can't be bettered. It can only be uh, tried to be almost copied and re yes. rehashed. You know, simulated. Yes. Well, is, I mean, so we're very lucky that we, you know, every band. Which is your favorite band? They say Led Zeppelin. 
who split up about 45 years ago. Exactly, exactly. It's, it's, it's totally mad, right? From the 50s and 60s, we created not only new music, new forms of songs, new ways, new forms of telling stories in songs, but I've got to say, for me, all through my career, it always seemed to me that the engineer never got enough credit for what they were doing. Because the engineer can be the difference between something brilliantly played on a piano or a guitar or a violin or whatever, sounding like crap or sounding absolutely heavenly. And, course, and, that's, yeah. and, and that's why, I mean, it seems to me, our, the engineer is never assumed to be an artist. They're assumed to be the technical staff. And in fact, yeah. at the BBC, you know, they wore white coats and I was working when they were in those days when they were, but, yeah. but I don't think that's true at all. You have to have an artistic sensibility to, to make those thousands of choices that you can make of, should I, should I give this a little, you know, two to one compression? Should I, should I use, you know, does it need a little more 4K? Whatever it is, you know, you have to make those decisions. There's a technical side to it, but of course there's an artistic side. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the other thing that I tell uh, youngsters who I'm working with is that in our day, sound like it sounds like our parents when you say that, but music was made by teams of people. Yes. It, it wasn't made by one person sat in front of a screen or sat in front of even a, a microphone or recording desk. Yes, it yes. was made by teams of people working together. You know, also we have that thing called bands, you know. Yeah. Was, which was pretty popular. Right. So you've got like four or five guys or maybe girls and guys all shouting at each other, which, is often, which was often the case, pulling things apart, pulling arrangements apart, right. each, one, each one playing a part in the band, you know, bass player, guitarist, pianist, singer, songwriter, everyone trying to get their bid in, in order to make this, create this product, you know? And I also think that had so much to do with how great the products were. Absolutely. You, know, you, you got the producer and the engineers working together. Very, and I always also say that it's very rare that you get one person who is able to do all these things. Indeed. You know, you might, you get a Stevie Wonder or a Michael Jackson who, yes. who, who really well, Michael is Jackson had a hell of a team. Yeah, well, he had a, maybe I shouldn't use him as the example, but Stevie Wonder definitely, he could go in a studio and yeah. he, was, he was half blind as well, you know, yeah. but he could be the engineer, he could be the drummer, he could be indeed, the singer. Indeed, indeed. And I think I think you agree that, I mean, I worked with McCartney a lot and he could yeah. very easily play everything and sing everything and it would be brilliant. Well, very jealous of you for doing that. Yeah. And I yeah. should be interviewing you, really. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm jealous of myself because it was a great experience. And, you know, here's yeah. the interesting thing. Maybe you've had this experience before. You're going to work with somebody when I knew I was going to work with McCartney, they, all these people who had worked with him said, oh man, it's going to be terrible. He's very controlling. He'll never oh, let wow. you do anything. He's very... I've never, I've never heard that. I've never heard that. Yeah, well, <laughs> all I can say is they, 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 everybody warned me about how difficult it was going yeah. to be to work with McCartney. I, yeah. I, I had, I was spent about a year with him and it was wow, utterly wow. pleasant, charming, friendly, yeah. couldn't have been nicer. That's Couldn't not what he told me. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, he probably didn't feel that way about me, but actually he did. Uh, but but we could well, I'm it very was jealous. Fine. And I'm I can see why good. other people might have a, 
hard time with him. But have yeah. you had those situations with people where they say, oh, he's going to be, oh, he's a great guy and you find him to be difficult or he's going to be difficult and you find him to be easygoing? I was backstage with John Lennon uh, before he went on with Elton John at Madison Square Gardens for this incredible concert in 1974. Yeah. And it's, it's not quite the same thing, but he was crapping himself. He was so nervous. And I'm going, what, you know, what's the matter with the guy? He's done everything. He's seen everything. He's been mm -hmm. everywhere. How can he possibly be nervous? That often when you don't know these people, when you haven't met them, it's, it's often the case that they're more subdued or shy. Like I was saying, Elton was very shy. I mean, I, I, I never got to work with uh, Paul. Mind you, there's still time. Maybe still you could put it, if you could put in a good word for me. I will. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll send I did... a picture of you in your hat. <laughs> I did get to work with George, you see. George came to, uh, it wasn't much in the way of work, but he came to the studio in Cookham. Uh, there's a film of it, of it actually on my Facebook at the moment. Nice. Uh, and he'd just done um, this film, uh, Shanghai Surprise, uh -huh. which he, he wrote the... Well, actually, he came to the mill a couple of times. He came there when Bill Wyman was there, and he was extremely shy. Amazingly enough, he seemed also quite um, not that uh, brilliant with sound and this sort of thing, because I was showing him some of the things in the studio, and I, and I found myself saying, oh, this is the thing that I use to get that across the universe, acoustic sound, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, he was very shy, I mean, and sort of... Uh, Actually, what he also was, was very putting down his own talents as a songwriter and as a singer, you know, in front of me. I mean, I never, yeah. I didn't even know him very well. And he's going, well, I've written a couple of songs. They're not as good as, you know, the other guys in the band, but they're all right. Yeah. He played, he played himself down. And I don't think I was expecting that. Yes. From, from I, him, from John Lennon to be so. Um, absolutely. Yeah, yeah so, and, and I've heard that too, uh, Stuart, I, from, yeah. from people who have worked with him. They said he was very self-deprecating. That's and, the word. Uh, that's the word. And, uh, and they, also said, they, they also said that um, he was also one of the nicest guys to work with and yeah. had a great sense of humor and joking around yeah. all the time. Absolutely. And of course, yeah, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. my friend John Altman worked with him, of course, with the Pythons. And so that was great. Now that's, I'm glad that you brought up John because I just saw him on your Facebook or on your website. That's right, yeah. And, and you probably don't know that I know John from over 50 years ago. It might even be 56 years ago. Nice. When we, when we were really little kids. Yes. And uh, John Tubular Ortman, I think we used to call him. <laughs> and he was, he just used to have us in uh, absolute, uh, or because he could play two saxophones at the same time, which yes. uh, I don't even think we'd seen one person play one saxophone at a time. <laughs> but, but yeah, so I've known John all those years. He's a great guy, a great player. Yeah. Terrific guy. And, and as you know, I've got, um, I featured him in my first of my series called Musicians Funnies. Fun. Some of your funnier stories will go into that. And I'm saving one for you. Oh, good. Well, it's, lay it's, it on me now. Go ahead. Musicians okay. funny, well, Stuart. Musicians funny. Well, to be honest, it's not very funny for me when it happened. It wasn't funny at all. It's only funny when you recount it, and it's now um, I don't know, thirty years later. Yeah. So I'll recount. The, I'll recount the story, and of course, it features Reginald Kenneth Dwight, otherwise known as Elton John. Right. 
So what, what was happening was we were at the Mill Studios, which is in the village where I'm talking from now, which is Cookham in Berkshire, beautiful village. We're at Elton John's producer's studio, Gus Dudgeon. Right. But uh, Gus isn't actually producing this. This is my friend Clive Franks uh, is producing this uh, album, which turned out to be called Single Man. Anyway, uh, we've been recording all day. And at various times in the day, Elton had said, look, before I go home tonight, I've got this idea of a song I want to put down. So we said, all right, all right. And we carried on, forgot all about it. Anyway, now it was about 11 o'clock. Everyone had gone home. We were, Clive and I were about to go home. And Elton suddenly says, oh, no, I, I must just put this thing down. So we're going, oh, all right, all right. He said, it won't take five minutes. It won't take five minutes. And, and you've, you've always got to worry when someone says that. Yes, yes, yes. Anyway, he goes out in the studio and uh, he, he tells us it's an instrumental. It's not a vocal. We only need the mics on the piano. He just wants to put this thing down. So I get a bit of tape or something or other thing. I better put multi-track on there just in case. So I put some multi-track on and he starts playing this thing, which you'll recognize the tune because it goes da, 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 da. Very nice tune, very nice okay, tune. Yes. However, we're recording it and we only get about 30 seconds and he makes a mistake. So, all right, stop, 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 go back to the top. Okay, and then we off again. Mistake, mistake, stop. You know, and I don't know whether you probably have heard that Elton's not the, he's not got the best, uh, you know, he can get a bit upset if things aren't going well. So he's, he's starting a little bit to get a bit upset with himself for not getting the song right, for keeping us back. But, you know, anyway, record again. Anyway, this time he's, he's roaring. He's into it. He's probably about two minutes into it. We're thinking it can't be much longer. I look round, and to be honest, I haven't put anything like a full reel of tape on there. You know, it was a bit of tape that was left because I thought, well, it can't be that long. He says it's not that important even but then he's like duh, 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 duh. And, uh, and then i'm looking at the tape machine thinking do you know what there really isn't a lot of tape here <laughs> and this is the first time he's got through this song and it's taken about an hour and a half to get to this point so now both clive and i are getting a bit worried a bit worried because in the terrible event that we ran out of tape well we'd just be dead that would be the end of that so we're sort of almost willing him to finish this song. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's going on and on. Da, 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 da. If you listen to it, you can hear. Da, da, da. Now I look round at the tape machine. I don't know whether you've ever seen that happen, but you, you almost can't tell how much tape's left. Yes. It, it's like when you're looking at your fuel gauge on a, on a car. Yes. And it, and it says empty, but you may think, well, maybe I've got another few yards to go. <laughs> Anyway, now we're both sweating away. We're, we're killing ourselves, you know, come on, finish this bloody thing. You know, the tape's almost running out. It's, it's, it's running on air, really. No word of a lie. He finishes the last chord. As the last chord dies away, the tape goes and runs out. Right. Yeah. Fantastic. So we just both, we both fell on the floor. Yes. And he, and he sort of goes, did you get that? We went, yes. Yes. <laughs> and but so did you tell him how close he came to not getting it? I only told him a couple of years ago, and he wasn't particularly interested, I'll be honest. He couldn't really <laughs> care less. Because the fact is, though, that that was the start of right. what became one of his biggest hits of all yes. time. Yes. You know, we put another piano on it, then we put another piano on it, put strings on it, and yeah. it built up into this thing that became number one.
mm. but it, it very nearly ended up on the floor and uh, i think there's a there there is a sort of a magic to the days of tape because magic of the, is the word. Be, because of the um the imperative that is always hanging over you like the sword of you know Absolutely. damocles's sister of yeah. if you don't get it in time the tape is going to run out it can run out well there's all these th that's why I, I i call my talks that i did in uh colleges the the magic of recording yes because there there was always that magic there was the there's the times when i'm sitting in the control room and i've got a whole band out there maybe without and singing live or maybe with paul rogers you know a great singer and you're halfway through it and you just know this is the one yes because they they've maybe done a dozen before that and they weren't as good as this is the one so yeah. now you're, you're sitting there praying to all the gods of studios yes that, that there isn't a power cut that the tape machine doesn't break down exactly. the mic doesn't go off which they can do you know yes. that yeah. anything can almost happen so yeah. when it gets to the end you know they very they often used to say did you get that yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it reminds me also of, you know, the, I find that the physicality of tape yeah. is, is, is a wonderfully tactile thing yeah, that you're almost touching the music, you know. And uh, I was recording um, Pat Metheny's album, American Garage. Oh. We had just recorded this beautiful track. Of course, anything they recorded was beautiful. But in the middle of this beautiful track, there was a big click. I don't know if you've ever had that. Just suddenly a click appears from nowhere. Of course, yeah. And I said, oh, geez, you know, we ruined it. I said, and, and so the engineer was this great engineer uh, in uh, America called Kent Nebergall. And, and he said, oh, no, no problem. Don't worry. Let me, let, me, let me just look at this. So he took the 24 track out and he didn't, yeah. he, he figured out where the click was. But not only that, he figured out where on the 24 track which track it was so he oh, said oh that's all right it's 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 track 17. so then he makes a little mark with a china graph the wow, famous yeah. china graph and for those of you in the audience who don't know what a china graph is you probably yeah. got one on your desk there but but it was oh, a little oh, wax yeah. pencil in what yellow or or usually mm -hmm. yellow uh yeah. that you could mark right. the tape with yes and he and he held it up he said just hold this piece of tape. And I had a piece of cloth around it. So I could, he said, hold it really tight. And I said, what are you doing? And he took a pin and he went, pow, what? just like that. And I said, that's wow. it. You've ruined everything. That, he said, don't worry about it. It's fine. I got it yeah. right in the middle of where the China graph was. I said, You're, you've just ruined everything. I'm going to kill myself. And sure enough, the click was gone. What? Have you ever well, seen anybody do hmm. something like that? Well, no, because we used to do it a different way. I'll be honest. We didn't tell ever me, do it me. that way. Bill used to call it spot welding. Yes. <laughs> so, so what you used to do is put that track in record and then hold the, hold the tape and literally you make a mark where the click is and then you just go backwards and forwards on oh. that tiny, oh. you know, whatever it is, like half an inch per second piece of tape. Yes. So you're, you're spot erasing that click. Yes. So in, instead of physically cutting it with a razor blade, yes, you'd be uh, spot erasing it, because admittedly the click might be like you're saying it was only on one track, um, it wasn't across the whole right. twenty-four or sixteen. Yeah. 
right. but the thing the thing is that uh, the person that I haven't spoken much about who spoke a lot about Elton but the uh, the guy that I learned a lot of this from was Gus Dudgeon who's absolutely yes I want you to talk about him yeah unfortunately not with us anymore but no. he was the most uh, very English very eccentric as well but um, you know I learned so much from him mainly the limits that you would go to because for him there was no limits to how far he would go to create the sound that he wanted you know we, we'd we'd spend a week on a tom-tom or a triangle or something like that you know he uh, he was never bothered by how long it was going to take how much it was going to cost it was just getting the best result possible and uh, and when it came to editing i mean i used to have to tell people in the room right gus is going to edit now please be quiet he didn't even like people breathing particularly when he no. was editing no you know it, it was such a like a, a special magic thing that he was doing um and so when you learn from someone like that, he was like a George Martin, I suppose. Uh, it's, it's an amazing privilege, actually. It was a privilege to work with him because, you know, I'd, I'd worked with him when he was producing Elton's first albums as far as in the record company. But when he built this Mill Studios, which was the most technically advanced studio in the world at that time, um, I was now actually physically working with him in the studio so that was quite a different thing and to be honest it, it was an honor it was an absolute honor <laughs> i mean admittedly it was a very tiresome honor at times because he would spend 18 hours in the studio while, while you're trying to keep your eyes open right um so that was the only problem but uh, it was an absolute honor to work with him and to see how he worked what was your very first solo production <laughs> gig well, I'm they, kind of talking about after the Gus Dudgeon experience. Oh, because, I see. Yeah, oh. see what I mean? Oh, kind of, well, the only thing about the birds, it, they were called Birds of a Feather. Oh. And it was quite good because I had Elton John on piano and Rick Wakeman <laughs> on keyboards. And I was only a kid. And actually, the only thing that bothered me was that it was at Trident Studios. This was my big moment. I was right. now going to be the producer. Uh -huh. And when I, walked in, when I walked into the control room, the chap that I was telling you about, Steve Brown, yeah. was sat. He was sat in the producer's chair. Right. And all I cared about was sitting in that bloody chair. <laughs> I, I thought if he doesn't move, I'm not. I'm going to go home. How you know, did you get him out of the chair? Luckily, we were just about to start, and he moved, and I got straight in that chair and didn't get out of it again for about three months. <laughs> Great. Well, but well, I... um, <laughs> but but following, because uh, what happened was that uh, Gus. Uh, had the mill studios for about five years then then had to sell it and so he uh, sold it to jimmy page and um yeah what was great at that time was that jimmy was telling people about the studio and would like would they like to come and use it so you know george harrison came down mick fleetwood uh bill wyman as i told you and then also there were some bands on uh the atlantic label that uh, jimmy was on and so I suppose the most, yeah, the most well-known one was Twisted Sister, mm. who, uh, who, to be honest, I wasn't really crazy about their music. In fact, I thought it was pretty horrible, mm. but they were, they were great guys. You know, they turned up at the studio. They said, you're producing our album. Phil Carson's told us you're the guy. They're all running about. Right. And they turn, out, they turn out to be really nice guys. And, you know, I heard a track in there that I could, I thought, wow, it sounds like my generation by the who i thought well that could be a hit you never know 
So I suppose that was the most important production because it was also a big hit uh, that I did on my own following the Gus period. Well, I definitely had it in my mind I wasn't going to spend as long as he did. And I wasn't going to, it wasn't going to cost half a million pounds either. Yes. So, so I, had to, I had to sort of decide that I was going to cut corners, you know. Yes. And to be honest, to be honest, uh, what they called heavy metal Yes. wasn't quite the same as your song or 60 years on no it wasn't so, so you could kind of cut corners and still get a great sound i'll tell you because gus is looking down on me and he might not want to hear this but i'm going to say it anyway Go ahead. That, that what i cared about uh, a lot of times when gus was working with artists they weren't that crazy about the production right or or that it took 10 years to make yes you know, they, they kind of weren't that crazy about it. So yeah, I, want, yeah. I wanted to do productions that the artist liked. <laughs> great, which, might great. See, which might seem obvious, but in no, those I mean, days, yeah. you know, in those, I, in, the, in those days, it was what the producer wanted. Yeah. And the producer was kind of doing what he thought the record company wanted. Yes. And the artist just had to go with uh, whatever they were given, really, yes. in a lot of ways. Yes. And if it happened... You know, and if it happened to all coincide, which, to be honest, on Elton's career, it did. Mm. You know, Elton, Elton liked the productions, the record company liked the productions, the public liked the productions. Exactly. So it was all fine. But uh, actually, yeah. when he was working with the, with some of the other artists that, you know, they, yes. they go, oh, I, I didn't really see it that way. I've always said there are different types of producers. Each producer yes, has, their, has their own. They're approaching it from someplace different. Like, for instance, yeah. you, unlike me, are a fantastic engineer and you understand that side of it way better than I than I could ever understand it, even though I've been working in studios for 50 years. Right. So so that's because you come you came at it from that starting point. Yeah, I came so over from that point of view. Yeah. I came right. I came at it from being a musician, musician. arranger. Yeah, a musician. Yeah, absolutely. So right. so for me, the arrangement is very important. The, the, yeah. I, I think of that, and I, that's my input to the track. Yeah. I'm saying, yeah. well, let's do this here, and this would be nice with a with a little uh, choir underneath it, or whatever it is, you know. Yeah. And so we all we all have our different things. George Martin was kind of, uh, I mean, I, I I had a brief chat with George Martin. Uh, be, I, he's featured in my book here, which I, I think you'd be fascinated by, um, yes, I'm sure. uh, called The Invisible Artist, and it's all about arrangers in popular music. But uh, of course, one chapter is on George Martin, and the interesting thing was, for me, was that he came at it from the point of view of being an absolutely brilliant arranger. And yet, yes. interestingly enough, he's not given credit on any Beatles record for any of the arrangements he did when, when in fact, he arranged 90% of them. That's, and that is crazy, yeah. That is yeah, crazy. it is crazy. I didn't, and I didn't know that. I suppose, though, the fact that he was probably getting 3% of a Beatles album oh, was man. the compensation. Well, yeah, except except whether or not EMI actually gave him that. Yeah, apparently, what I've heard oh, is that he got nothing for most of the Beatles albums because he wow. was an EMI contracted producer. Yeah, so you, he just got his probably, salary, and that was that's it. That's probably right. Isn't that crazy? I've never, I've never heard anyone talk about that or anything. Yeah. Well, that, that's I talk about that a lot in this book, and wow. and uh, the other thing is that he said he got paid fifteen quid for his arrangements. Now I don't know how much. For instance, when you were doing the Elton John album, 
yeah. how much was paid for the string arrangements or, you know. Yeah, well, good question. Well, Paul Buckmaster was the arranger. Exactly. But I think, I think 15 quid was what, uh, that was almost double what the musicians were getting for a three hour session. Because I used to, yeah. book, I used to book all the music, musicians. <laughs> right. I, I think it was nine pounds. Nine pounds. For, that's right. I remember. Yeah. So actually, fifteen quid was pr probably quite good. Yeah. For nineteen, probably. well, for nineteen sixty-seven or something. Yes, anyway. exactly, exactly. Very interesting. Now, um, we've talked yes. about what the younger generation can learn from us old farts, but I also <laughs> would like to speak for talk about a. What production techniques would you say you've learned from uh, what modern contemporary production techniques do you think you've learned from or are you using today in your productions? Well, I'll tell you what I, I, I hear. <clears throat> um, and I, as a good example is that I, it's a few years ago now, you'll, you'll realize that when I say who the artist was, but I was in the car, I got the radio on, uh, I don't often listen to the radio, but a track comes on and I just think, what is that? Who is that? It's a great voice. It's a great sound. It's a great song. I love it. Who is it? And, and, and generally, they didn't tell you who it was at the end, but it turned out to be Ed Sheeran. Right. Well, I'd, never, I'd never heard of Ed Sheeran. I don't know who he is. And I think, well, blimey, that's really, really good. And it happened again on another, on another single, I guess, until... You know, because the same thing happened. I didn't know who it was. It was like hearing a new artist for the first time, mm. but great sound, great voice, great production. I then played them in my studio. And, you know, nine times out of 10, when something really, you know, hits the charts or is some new artist like Ed comes along, although that doesn't happen very often, mm. uh, I do marvel myself at the recording quality and the production value. It's, it's, I liked what you said about uh, the input that different producers have, that some come from, an, like I worked with John Leckie, who came from an engineering background. Right. So he's, he's very laid back in the studio. He really just sits there and right. while the band's getting on with it. Mm. And you know, he doesn't really get involved in the arrangements too much or what people are playing, is just in charge of it all going down. Yes. Whereas, whereas you're saying, like with yourself, and also that was the case with Gus, he'd start with the demo, mm. and he pulled the he pulled the song apart before starting on the Indeed. on the recording. You know, yeah. he's very into yeah. the arrangement, and yeah. and I'm I'm like that as well. I mean, I don't do it for its own sake, but if if the if the chorus is at the beginning and the and the verse is at the end, you know, yeah. I, I tend yeah. to say yeah. I think there's some there's something wrong with this song here. Yes. You know, I write and songs myself. So. I, I, was, I was lucky enough for the book to interview uh, Jerry Wexler, and that's actually up on the Radio right. Richard site. Uh, yeah. And Jerry was just unbelievable. It was such an honor to be able to talk to him because yes. he was so articulate and such a thinking man uh, about music. And so yes. he, he talked about working with these great rhythm sections. And I... I kind of have the feeling that it must have been a little bit like the Led Zeppelin experience that you've already got an existing rhythm section that they're all professionals and they played a lot together already so there's a kind of a inbuilt thing and of course with Jerry Wexler he had not only the guys in New York but especially when he went down to Muscle Shoals and the Stax yeah. group of musicians they already yeah. had a lot together and he, he called this 
collective arranging rather than having an arranger hand out parts. And yes. and uh, I'm sure you've experienced that many times. And and I have once in a while when I've been lucky enough to have, uh, you know, rhythm sections that I know how uh, that I know have played together a lot. So that's an interesting other side of, of production and knowing how to let them get on with it. I mean, it was the funniest line that Jerry Wexler said. He said, well, you know, with Ray Charles as a producer, all I did was turn the lights on in the studio and he didn't even need that. <laughs> Very good. I like that. I only met Robbie Williams once when he was ah. in a certain band and when I arranged some hits for them. And uh, yeah. and I and I've never worked with the guys in Oasis, but there are people who are sort of notorious for being yes, that's wild right. and crazy guys. And, and, I, and crazy I'd love guys. you to talk a little bit about because I know you worked with both of them. Yes, that's good. So um yeah, the two very different, although the weird thing is that Robbie ended up going out with the same girl as Liam Gallagher, nice. which was a bit bit weird because they hated each other, Liam and Robbie time? again. Not at the same time and not in the same room. <laughs> Good. But, um, but the thing is that, uh, you know, I'd started the studio after the mill. I'd started the studio in Alvin, Alvin Lee's studio, Alvin, yes. Alvin Lee from... 10 years after yes. and I, was, I made it into this commercial studio. I brought in my own uh, mixer that Gus had uh, invented almost. And I was trying to get more artists to book it, you know, and at the time we had this thing called uh, Britpop. Yes, we're talking about, talking about the mid nineties. And um, Paul Weller had actually, who's way up there in Britpop had been into the studio. He liked it. He's a great guy, a really nice guy to work with. He told Liam about the studio, Liam Gallagher from Oasis. And next minute I'm sitting there and the phone goes from Oasis's office. And to be honest, this was, it, you know, it was like McCartney ringing me up. I mean, it was the best thing for my studios. Although I wasn't a big Oasis fan, they were the biggest of the Brit pop Yes, band. indeed, they were huge. So, so next minute they're saying, yeah, Liam wants to book the studio, or Oasis want to book the studio. And, and it was a bit of a story because uh, the, he'd obviously, the roadie had obviously said, what shall I bring? And he must have said everything. When I turned up at the studio, which was a big studio, it was a very big studio area, there was every single amp, every single microphone, every single instrument. He had about 120 guitars. Anyway, Noel arrives. To be honest, he wasn't very chatty. He uh, doesn't, didn't look me in the face. He wasn't really that... Uh, friendly to be honest but anyway we started um we were working on um what became on the shoulders of giants and um the guy is unbelievably well talented he's a total brilliant professional um he's a great instrumentalist most of the time i was thinking what why has he got oasis i mean he's got a great voice they're all his songs what why does he need that band I, you know it's in math so he's doing everything himself got mellotrons he's he's a real techno you know he's not techno i mean he's into all the old instruments right you know at, at one point he said i want to get this john lennon acoustic sound so he goes he goes behind him and he gets john lennon's acoustic out that he's <laughs> bought that, what, yes. that was john lennon right. he puts the microphone on it that john lennon would have put on it the c12 right, right. And, and and surprisingly it sounds like john lennon surprisingly because he, yeah. he then plays it yeah. But anyway, uh, after a few days, he then says, uh, right, we're packing up. He said, Liam's found out that we're here. 
uh, he's going to come down. He'll trash the place. We better get out before he arrives. Nice. I'm thinking, great. Well, that's great. They're supposed to be here for two weeks. I, thought, I said, well, that's not very good, you know. Anyway, while we're talking about this, Liam arrives. He suddenly bursts into the studio, and he's the opposite to, to Noel. He is totally friendly. He's absolutely great. He loves the room. I mean, it was a great room. He said, actually, it looked like Jimi Hendrix's bedroom. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and later on, I wanted to know how he knew that. He was totally brilliant, and we got on like a house on fire. He's playing me songs, and, uh, and actually, him and Liam, for the next few days, they got on great. They had a few drinks together, and uh, you, you, got a, you got an idea of what, because I never saw Oasis live, but when these two were working together, you, you know, you got an idea of the force that was kind of behind them. Yes. Because Liam's the front guy, you know, and he's yes. got the voice and he's got the look. And yes. then you've got Noel, who's the brains and the yes. songwriter. Yes. So it wasn't, you know, you could really see. And also the thing that I haven't mentioned is that they had all this old equipment apart from guitars, microphones, they also had compressors the size of my room, equalizers from Abbey Road that were yes. huge, yes. you know, with like cobwebs all over them. Yes. And I'm sort of thinking, but, but what do we want that for? You know, this desk is sort of modern. Yes. But anyway, they used all this stuff. And at the end of it, you got to say what came out the other end was the Oasis sound, yes. which was sort of, sort of like the Beatles, but but with their songs, so. Exactly, exactly. It was a, it was a great session and um, unfortunately then the two of them just, you know, they fight like, uh, yeah. Cause one of them's, one of them's extremely rich. The other one isn't quite so rich. So they, they would fall you, you, out. You mean, uh, you mean Noel is extremely rich? Yes, cause he's the songwriter, isn't yeah. he? So there's now, this now, right, look, you must, you must know this rivalry that exists when you've got two brothers in a band um, you know, apparently the Everly brothers were like that, and yes. uh, the guy, the, the brothers in the Kinks, you know, they want to kill each other and all this. Yeah, yeah. This other call that I got when I had the studio was from Chris Briggs. I don't always remember his name. Yes, I do. But Chris, yes. Chris Briggs is a great music guy. He he rang up because I'd rung him and said, "Listen, I got the studio. If you've got anyone that wants to, you know, record, obviously it'd be good if they were well-known, bring them down. So he rings up, he says, right, I've got a project for you guys, Robbie Williams. Um, we're working on, he wants to work on a new album. So I said, great, you know, I didn't know much about him because you know he's from Take That. Mm. And, uh, and, and it's hard to imagine, but at the time, his solo album, Life Through a Lens, I think Chris said it had sold about 20,000 uh -huh. and it was really dying, it had finished, it finished. Yeah. So they, he's got to come in, but they were sticking with him and, um, you know, he's going to come down. So Robbie turned up with Guy Chambers. Yep. Um, who I, so I haven't met either of them, but um, a great duo, basically, and a Absolutely. really brilliant duo. Yes. Um, and, and uh, you know, Robbie, not the best voice on the planet, to be honest. And, uh, and what was also interesting about the session was that he'd do his vocal. I wasn't producing. There was a producer there. I can't remember his name. Um, Robbie would do his vocal, and then he'd go. And then in through the back door would be this massive amount of tuning equipment that would come in. Because wow. it was at the time when that it almost just been invented, that tuning, you know, the tuning. Uh, yes, auto-tune. Equipment. Yes. Auto-tune, exactly. 
And so, uh, but they didn't want him to know. Ah, oh, they, oh, yes. they thought he'd be up. They thought he'd be upset if yes. if he had to be told. Well, we tuned your voice. Yes. But what I found with Rob, what I found with Robbie, he was like an actor singer. Yes. And and I and I think that he learnt to sing by listening to himself. Yes. You know, so when he heard himself now perfectly in tune. Yes. He would then copy that next time he did a vocal. And so I think Robbie oh, Williams. Right kind of had to learn how to become Robbie Williams. And I think you're so right yeah, explaining that's, that's why it that's was. Absolutely. That's a very good way of putting it. Yeah. And um, in fact, it was quite funny because um, I don't know whether you've heard of Norman Wisdom. Have you heard of, of Norman Wisdom? Remember, I, 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 I first came to London in 1962. Really? So I know Norman Wisdom well, very well. Well, you know, for people who don't know him, he was this crazy a uh, guy who's always falling over, you know, making a fool of himself. And I was actually sitting with Robbie when he was watching uh, Tom Jones. Yep. He was watching something with Tom Jones and he said, look, he said, look at that guy. Why can't I look like that when I'm dancing around the stage? He said, whenever I see myself, all I look like is Norman Wisdom. <laughs> yeah, they're very true. I understand that. Yeah. But what Robbie's got had going, well, still got going for him is that he's only got a look at the camera. And he's sort of got this mesmerizing. Okay. Mesmerize. He's he's got a charisma, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, that's the word. He's got that's the charisma. Yeah, and he's also uh, pretty good at putting words together. So yeah, he used to ask me about Elton and say, you know, how did Elton do this and yes, how did yes, Elton yes. do yes. that? And yeah, so, which is great uh, because I, I think actor. that shows the respect that he had for what went before. Yeah. And I think you know we all we all can only learn from what's gone before, not to copy it but to say, okay, that's how that was done. Now maybe I could do this. So I think Absolutely. that's an important thing. Otherwise, the, the problem that I think we all have, and I, I'm going to mention this to let you rant a little bit about it. There is a, oh. there is a plethora, see, I got another word in there. There are a plethora of yeah. different software programs, which you can buy where you can actually buy chord progressions, rhythm sections play recorded beautifully uh vocal parts backing vocal parts even lyrics even even lyrics you can you can put these tracks together by the numbers and i think that's yeah. one of the reasons why i do listen to radio a lot i listen to pop radio to hear what's going on and i would yeah. say something like 90 percent of the tracks i can hear oh yeah they're using that loop again oh yeah it's that it's that sample it's that the, yeah. and so it's it's not it's not like somebody going into the studio with a story that they're telling from their heart. It, it's really just let's make this commercial bit of product, and yes. and, it, and they are. I'm not saying that they're not making money, but if you don't believe, as I don't believe, <laughs> that uh, making a fortune is justification for doing anything in music, then yeah. then for me, that's the negative thing about today's music and for every somebody like Ed Sheeran who you very uh, very well mentioned as being one of the really talented guys who who writes his own songs and has a unique voice there are a million clones out there because absolutely. of the technology yeah because of the technology well you're absolutely right everything that you've said is right um, and um, and I'm often saying I think I said it to someone yesterday who uh, who's written a song and they sent me the demo and uh, and I quite liked it. It was a bit like an early Elton song in a way, but um, they said, I'm sorry about the piano. 
um, because I used, um, you know, it's all quantized. Yes, yes. I, I said, well, can you play the part? Because you wrote the song. And I was saying, you know, you want to come into my studio, we'll record it again. Right. I said, well, if it's your song and you sound like you're not a bad pianist, why don't you just play it from top to bottom in time with a click or something? Yeah. And, you know, if it goes out of time, we'll do that bit again. Yeah. We, instead of quantizing it, so it sounds like a robot. Because exactly. then, then the writer was also saying, this is a very emotional song. You know, it's all full of emotion. It's about this problem and that problem. I say, well, if it's such an emotional song, why do you want a robot playing the piano? Exactly. You know? And also so, another thing which doesn't occur to these people at all is why not hire a really great piano player? Exactly. I mean, exactly. other people hired Elton John. Yes. They had a song. They said, let's get that guy Elton John or get this guy Reg yeah. Dwight. He was a fantastic piano player. Why not? Well, we, we obviously think very much the same. And, and I also say the same thing. Uh, it seems like, it seems to be the case that youngsters feel like they have to do everything. Otherwise, it's not right. Yeah. They have to be the singer, the songwriter, the pianist, the guitarist, the drummer. Um, you know, one way or another, I'll, yeah. I'll be all those things to yeah. make it work. And I'm constantly saying, you know, the few people that have succeeded being all those things but generally you know it's best to leave it to the people that know better and to if it's worth it you know if it's worth something if the song is worth something then it's got to be worth doing it right but it's 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 a different era i think and um you know often also i find that um some youngsters might want to do it the total opposite way that right. it's been done before so a, a, a young chap was sitting opposite me here and we had a good old chat. He was only like 18, I think. And he said, right, so I put his song on. Well, I could see that it was quite a long song because it said six minutes on it. Ouch. There was a two minute intro. Ouch. There was a, a sort of a, a 15 second verse. Ouch. Then there was a solo. Then there was a short chorus and then it finished. Yes. So, yeah so you know, I, was, I was trying i was trying to explain that you know there are aspects to that song that were pretty good yeah. but you've kind of got them all in the wrong order yeah. and he was quite he was actually quite pleased with that because right. he thought ah in that case i've created something different then right yes exactly so, yeah. he thought but, but there's a, but there's a there is kind of a reason why certain yes. things have become yeah. form you know, the That's form nice. of songs works be for yeah. because storytelling, okay. I, I explain to my students, I say, yeah. well, you know, you don't tell a story. Uh, the guy yeah. was run over by a by a taxi. Uh, yeah. then, then he woke up in the morning. Then he had yeah. a cup of coffee. Then they took yeah. him to hospital. You don't tell the story that way. You tell That's it right. in order because otherwise people can't understand it. Yeah. it you know, speech works in yeah. a certain way. Music works in a certain yeah. way. And I guess... You know, you have to explain it that it's you know, making music is an art form, like drawing a picture, like making a painting, yes. like making a film, like taking a photo, yes. and and some of the very basic things of all those art forms haven't actually changed. You know, no. they've they, like you say that you use those things as a basis and you try and make something new, exactly. but you don't you don't try and change something that's been kind of working very well. Well, you know, the, you, you were talking about Robbie Williams. 
Now, when he came in to my studio, it was for the second album, and I had to play all the new songs, and yes. I had to, I had to, as the engineer, write down the format. Yes. You know, so so that we could drop in and this, that, and the other. Indeed. And although I although I didn't know Robbie Williams, it occurred to me straight away that the format of all his songs followed the format of songs I've been following for fifty years. Of course. You know, there'll be the intro. There's the right, there's right the, too. There's the first verse. There's right. the bridge. The exactly. bridge is the verse to the chorus. Exactly. There's the there's the next intro. Yes. And I just thought, wow, that's amazing. Well, that album, I think was called uh, I've Been Expecting You, and that was the reason why EMI gave him $50 million. Nice. That's kind of yeah. nice. Yeah, well, so, there you are. And and it's exactly the way that any producer thinks about producing a, yeah. a song. And, and here's another thing that I thought of while you were talking. It's interesting that the majority of young artists I talk to, and I talk to lots of them because I, I do quite a bit of teaching one-on-one -on -one lessons and stuff. I'm, I'm amazed at the amount of ego that these young artists have, oh, their no. lack of humility and their lack of reverence for That's certain true. things. I mean, it's, it true. sounds like you and I both. I yeah. mean, I certainly grew up, I was lucky to grow up with a father who was a jazz musician and had worked with Sinatra and people like that. So I grew up loving that music and being respecting it and being very interested, obviously, in people like Nelson Riddle and Billy May and all those arrangers. And then yeah. at the same time, I grew up as a kid in 60s London, going out, going out and loving. I mean, I sat, you talk about Alvin Lee, I sat at the Marquee Club probably yeah. 20 times, oh, seeing 10 well. years after, sitting in the front row, getting yeah. soaked by by his sweat, which is kind of gr gross. But, yeah. you know, I well, just, I, some I, I have some for respect for these guys, for these different yeah. musicians all doing different, but these, a lot of the people that I meet have no respect for anything and they think they know yeah, better. Man. Most of the great musicians that I work with and certainly the ones that became successful, uh, you know, they were happy just to be trying to follow in the footsteps of the people whose music they loved. Yes. You know, yeah. and, and it wasn't, it also wasn't about money. I try and tell youngsters yeah. that as well. I don't know any of the Elton, whoever it was, Jimmy Page, they never said, oh, this but is going to make loads of money. Absolutely. Was, but uh, there's a, re it, there's another reason for that, uh, Stuart, I think. And that is yeah. in, in those days, the 60s, 70s, 80s, even through the 80s, there were places to play live. That's and true. and yeah. although you couldn't make a fortune doing it, yeah, doing local gigs, playing in pubs and clubs, you yeah. could make some kind of a living. That's completely yeah. gone today. That is utterly yeah. gone. If you're an unknown artist, you can't do anything. So the yeah. only way in is to go in at the top. And that's that's one of the problems. Unless you happen yeah. to be an internet genius and you're really and you've got a budget for a serious internet marketing. Then, yeah. then, man, you, you've got to go in at the top, and that's why they're all concerned about money, and it's yeah. a tragedy. In some respects, you know, obviously there's hundreds of thousands of people, more people trying to make music than there were, and, every, and almost everyone has got the capability now of recording, and everyone thinks they can sing, and they ought to be able to do it because they've seen it on the X Factor, how you can become great within a week and all this. But it's still that... 
that it still needs that magic to produce something special and and for that almost magic situation as well for it to become a commercial uh, success it's still almost just as just as difficult maybe more difficult i don't know there's more competition now than there ever was absolutely you know like when you were saying when you were at the marquee you know literally you could become famous by going down well at the marquee for a week mm -hmm. you know because the word soon got round yeah uh and and some of those people like 10 years after like alvin lee like led zeppelin or uh some of those bands at the time mm. you know the word would get round and 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 it did happen fairly quickly for them i suppose that's the one thing that is different, and it's the one thing I lament that there, there aren't anywhere near enough, if, there's a, if there are any, clubs where mm -hmm. a newcomer can go on and get paid some decent scale for, yeah. for showing up and playing and let the audience decide. But of course, the music business doesn't want the audience to make the decision. They want to make decision. So now yeah. they, they, they control the outlet. So the, the only outlet radio they've always controlled because they can use bribery and corruption to get the playlists that they want. Uh, yeah. And as far as Spotify, they're in control of, of what gets played. You know, I do tell youngsters as well, this isn't, this isn't fun, actually. This is hard work. Mm. You know, it's all very well to make music. Yeah, great. You can make music as a hobby. If you want to sell it, it's not, it's difficult. Yes. You know, like you make a piece of music, now see if your friend will buy it for $10. Well, they'll probably say, I don't like it that much. Yeah, you know, yeah, so, yeah. you know, it's just like any other business selling it and making it a commercial success is yeah. very, very hard. You know, people expect, I'll tell you, I don't know whether, because we haven't mentioned it, I might as well mention it. Go ahead. Because you were talking about, you like to hear gripes. Yes. Oh, yes. And, and I was thinking that I don't have any. Now I've just remembered the, the main one. Good, good. Whip it out. The main one is that I'm a, I'm a record producer. And a lot of the people, the youngsters that I work with actually don't know what a record producer is. Oh. So they assume that it's the same as a film producer. And so I'm the one that pays for it, apparently. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so when I, when I mention that I charge for what I do, they're horrified. Absolutely. Yeah. So I have to point out that it's more like a film director, not yes. film producer. Yes, indeed. and you know they're the ones that put it all together, and uh, and that yes. actually we do charge, and that we're we're yes. we're just like musicians. We need paying for what we do. And, and the difficulty of getting paid, either by uh, individual clients or by record companies today. In fact, it's even more difficult to get paid it's by record companies. And yeah. and what I now say, just right at the beginning, I say, my charges are fifty percent up front. And the rest in advance. <laughs> That's very good. I like that. Thank you. I'll have to write that down. Otherwise, yeah, I I'll think get you it... can use that, Stuart. You, Otherwise, you... I'll get it wrong. No, no, I'll, I'll get it wrong. You're you're welcome to use I'll it. Get that wrong. Um, I like that. Well, because the thing is that everyone assumes that music's for free now. No, well, this is it. This is the problem. You, you know, you could, I mean, Spotify is almost free, isn't it's it? It's completely free. Yeah. It's completely free if you if you don't mind the advertisements. And the adverts. Yeah, yeah. Even if you pay for it, I don't know. It's like, you know, we used to save up for a record, didn't we? Oh man, I did. Yeah, it used I to be. I was down at the record store every. You know, I knew yeah. that the new records came in on a Friday morning. Man, I was right. there. Yeah, 
Yeah. I, I, I remember when I bought the, you know, the first Rolling Stones record. Wow. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Mine was uh, Rubber Soul, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. then I was, I was taking it home. No, actually, I'm, I'm lying. I borrowed Rubber Soul from a girlfriend. Yeah. And as I was taking it home, it rolled out of the sleeve and fell on the pavement and, bro and it broke. Oh, no. And I just didn't know what I was going to do, how I was going to tell them. Because, you know, the other thing, that if because I'm onto the rants now, you've got me going with the rants. Yeah. When people, when people talk about um, money and paying for this, that and the other, I say, do you know what? When I first used to buy records, I think they were about two pound. Mm hmm. Uh, that was in 1960, whatever, four. By yeah, rights, by rights, a CD should be about 200, about $500. Yeah. yeah. $500 for a CD. Yeah. For, for an album, not a CD. Yeah. yeah. And well, then, you know, I remember when I saved up and then I, the, I had to line up around the corner. I lived yeah. near Sloan Square and I lined up around the corner yeah. to buy the first Who, Who record, the very yes, first Who it, album. If you lived anywhere near Sloan Square, I should think you you could afford it. Yeah, I, not not really, <laughs> not really. But but anyway, listen, man, we we actually could talk for about six more hours. Yeah, and now uh, we're starting to sound like a bunch two of old farts, extremely old farts. And yeah. you definitely don't look like an old fart. Thank I you. I have to say, me. you look like a relatively new fart. Well. <laughs> That doesn't well, sound good. I don't that know. Sound good. I'll get somebody to come in and take a sniff and find out. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, we have to get together in the same room and do we, all this. We together. definitely will, man. And, and, yeah. and let's record something together. That would be fun. I thought we just did. Stuart F., yes. producer, genius, hey. great, hot, beautiful shirt. Thank you so much for coming on Thank Radio Richard. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure, pressure, and everything else. Radio Richard